last Sunday here before the new year. And so we actually got a lot to cover today. And we, we've been talking about let's focus on the presence. And Victor, in the, in the two Sundays before the Grinch, has kind of laid a groundwork of how people had to meet God in that way. And what they had to do in ancient times to be able to meet with God. And if you remember, he talked about the time that they would have to, what they had to do, the five chapters he talked about with constructing of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and having to go through all of those things just to have the opportunity to be in the presence of God. And then he talked about how God would lead them with a cloud by day and a pillar by night. The Shekinah glory of God that would radiate from the Ark of the Covenant by night. And they would follow him wherever the presence of God moved, the people with God would move with it. And then he talked about the Jordan River crossing and how when they crossed the Jordan, the, the water just walled up and they walked through on dry ground. And how Moses said, I'll go wherever you want me to go, but I'm not going without you. And Moses did not see the promised land because I said, I'm going to hang out on this side with you. And so that has been kind of this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And Victor talked about how God provided for them with manna and how their clothes didn't wear out and their clothes still fit. I thought that was a nice little addition, um, which made me come up with a great idea. For 1995, at the end of the service, I will tell you about the manna diet plan. I promise you, you will not gain weight. You will get really tired of eating the same thing. But at the end of that, your clothes will still fit. So you can meet me at the Connection Center later. We can talk about that. Anybody here remember, they probably still exist, but Cliff's Notes. So Cliff Notes was what we got through school before the internet. And if you're not familiar with Cliff Notes, it was basically a Wikipedia entry that was a real short condensation of a book that you were supposed to read. And no matter what a teacher does or what they do, there are just some people that just aren't going to read the book. And I was one of those people. And so Cliff Notes were great because it gave you the highlights and it would kind of give you the basic general idea of what the book was about. I had a uh, world lit class because sometimes, sometimes the books that they want you to read aren't even good enough to be made into a movie, which I think is just absurd. I had a world lit class, and the first book we were supposed to read was The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury, and it's the dumbest book I've ever attempted to read in my entire life. I made it to page 43, and that was, that was it. That's as far as I was going to get, because the cliff notes of The Martian Chronicles would read something like, People went to Mars, and they died. And then other people went to Mars, and they died. And then some other people went to Mars, and they lived for a little while, and then they died. The end. Stupid book. And so Victor, when he was talking, really kind of encompassed about 40 to 100 years of history in what he was referring to, which is great, because that only leaves me 3,900 years to cover today. And you think I'm kidding, but that's what we're going to do. We're doing 3,900 years of history today, because it's Christmas. And we need to know why we do what we do. And we're going to talk about, we're going to spend most of the day in the Old Testament. Now, I do not like the phrase Old Testament. And for two reasons. Number one, it's all old. Okay? The newest book we have in Scripture is the Gospel of John, and it's at least 2,000 years old. It's all old. Okay? 
The second reason I don't like it is because everything from Genesis 1 to the end of the Revelation is the testament of Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, every single thing is about him. It is one conglomerate over 4,000 years of concise penmanship directing to one individual, our Savior. And so, like I said, we've got a lot to cover. So Genesis 1-1. Sam is going to read, recite to you from Genesis to Malachi today. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen? 17 people believe that. That is amazing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen? Okay. Because if we don't believe that, the rest of it doesn't make any sense. So we got to start with the basic foundation of what he's actually talking about. And we know from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see Adam and Eve in the garden created in the image of Almighty God. Genesis 3 is the fall of man. The Cliff Notes version of the Adam and Eve story is Adam and Eve are good, a serpent, not good, fruit, aw. That's the condensed version of what happens. And at the fall of man, there is, God comes to talk and hang out with Adam and Eve which is what he is used to doing. This is what his desire has always been, was just to hang out with his people and to have fellowship with them and to talk with them and to spend time with them and to have relationship with them. And when they sin, God comes down to talk to them and they're is a couple things that happen. He kind of lays out some consequences for the action. He, he tells Adam that from now on, life's going to get harder. It was really easy in the garden, but now by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat. You're going to have to work for your food. And he told the woman, you're going to have some pain in childbirth. Now, I've never had a child physically but I hear it's almost like us having a cold. And so I sympathize with you ladies. But then he says something to the serpent. And, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says something along the lines of, you'll be cursed among all the other beasts of the field. On your belly you'll crawl and you'll eat the dust. And then he says, I will put hostility or enmity, if you're reading the King James, between you and the woman. And between her seed and your seed. It took nine verses, nine basic sentences from Adam's sin to the first prophecy of Jesus. Nine verses. He has a, a small interaction with Adam and with Eve, and then he talks to the serpent, and he says, there's going to be hostility between your seed and her seed, and you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Nine verses. Because that's plan A. God does not have a plan B. There has always been a plan. So immediately, right out of the gate, the first thing, Adam and Eve sin, and God says, I've already got a plan to restore everything. Nine verses before his first prophecy. Genesis 4, it's basically the story of Cain and Abel, things didn't go real great there. 
Genesis 5 is the genealogy from Adam to Noah. Now, some stuff happens there, but we don't know a whole lot about this time period. We know there was a guy named Enoch who just walked with God, and then one day God was like, it's closer to my house than it is yours. Let's just go home. And then Genesis 6 begins the story of Noah and the flood. There's a whole lot that happens in Genesis 6 that I could literally spend hours talking about, but I'm not going to. And if we understood all of that, we would understand so much more of the Old Testament. But I really believe, so then we have Noah's flood. And so congratulations, we just completed half of the time frame. It's about 2,000 years between Adam and Noah. And we don't know a lot. But after Noah, we see the Tower of Babel. We see the dispersion of the people. And we meet a guy named Abram. And Abram, who becomes Abraham, is known as a friend of God. What an incredible title to have. To be known as the friend of God. The cool thing about Abraham is that Abraham had this amazing relationship with God where God would come and hang out with him and talk to him. Because that's, again, what God has desired always. And so Abraham would hang out with God and just hang out with him. And this is before the law is given and well before Jesus. But the Bible says that he just believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So Abraham hangs out with God, has a relationship with them, and God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he tells him that the whole world will be blessed through you. I'm going to give you a lot of descendants, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore, and the whole world will be blessed by it. And Abraham was like, that sounds awesome. And then forever goes by and nothing happens. And Abraham tried to take things into his own hands and he had a son named Ishmael, which really wasn't the plan. You can read your Bible. Then Isaac was born, the son of promise. And so Abraham believed God that the whole world would be blessed through him, and he saw truly one child born. And Isaac grows up and has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And they had a little bit of a sibling rivalry. And Jacob, as Rich Mullins so eloquently put it, Jacob loved Rachel And Rachel loved him, and Leah was just there for dramatic effect. Jacob has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And all this time, we see God just hanging out with Abraham. He has a relationship with Isaac. Him and Jacob have a crazy relationship. They actually wrestled together once. And so this is kind of the the genealogy that leads into the life of the Israelite people. And we see them go into the sons with Joseph. And we end up down the line in Egypt. Israel chooses slavery. And spends 430 years in Egypt as slaves to the Egyptians. And then there's a guy named Moses. Who was born in a time when you're supposed to kill the kids. And they flowed him down a river. And he was raised in Pharaoh's household. And he became older. He killed a guy. He's a hero, by the way. He killed a guy, and he runs away. 
And God meets him. God meets him at a burning bush and begins to tell him, I've got a plan, and you're a part of it. And I want you to go back, and I want you to tell Pharaoh that it's time to let my people go. And Moses says, that's not a good idea. We shouldn't do that. And God says, no, for real. And Moses is like, no. And he's like, no, for real. And so he goes. And he goes to Pharaoh, and he says, hey, you got to let the people go. God said, let my people go. King James would say, thus saith the Lord. The God of Israel, you got to let the people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And this went on for a while, and all kinds of things happened. And then, the Passover. And the Passover, if you're not familiar with the story, is God said, I'm going to pass through, and every firstborn male of everything is going to die. It's the last of the plagues. But for you, I'm going to provide a way out. For you, you're going to sacrifice the lamb, you're going to put the blood over the doorposts, and when the angel sees that, he's going to pass over you. And so this happens, and God, at that moment, institutes the Passover. Now, the Passover is a, I'm going to call it a calendar festival, because it comes around every year. It has a certain date. It has a specific moment in time that you're supposed to celebrate it. And God told Moses, you celebrate Passover forever, forever, for generation after generation after generation. You celebrate Passover. He gave them specific instructions on how to celebrate it. And the whole thing was about remembering. Remember what I did for you. And the Passover happens, and Pharaoh says, okay, get out of here. And so they leave, and they go to the Red Sea. And you guys know these stories. But you go to the Red Sea, they part, God parts the waters, and about 2 million people walk across. Okay? It's not like 35 people that are leaving Egypt. There's a lot of them. And they walk across on dry ground. And then the same path that they walked across, God uses the same water that he parted to destroy the most powerful military in the world at the time and cripples a civilization. And God says, remember, when you celebrate the Passover, you tell the story and you remind your children why we do this? Because I rescued you out of Egypt. I marched you through the Red Sea. I destroyed your enemies. And then we get into what Victor already talked about with the cloud by day, the pillar by now, the, the, by night, the wandering through the wilderness. Manna every day provided. And we get to Joshua. Actually, before we get to Joshua, after they cross the Red Sea, Moses goes to Sinai. And the presence of God is resting on Mount Sinai. And the people of Israel say, Moses, why don't you go up there? We don't want any part of it. We're scared. So Moses goes and meets with God. God literally carves out the Ten Commandments, writes them himself, and gives them to Moses to give to the people. And he, Moses and God, had such an amazing relationship. Moses is like, I just want to see you. And God said, you'll die. But I'll tell you what, I'm just going to pass by. I'm going to cover you, and I'm going to pass by. 
And when Moses came down from Sinai, from being in the presence of God, they had to veil his face because his face shone like the sun because he had been in the presence of God. It literally illuminated him. That's incredible. On a little side note, while Moses is on Sinai, the people are being people. And they're building a golden calf. And the guy in charge of building this calf is a guy named Aaron. And God is giving instructions to Moses on how things are going to operate from here on out. And he says, I've got a high priest picked out. And Moses is like, great, who is it? And he goes, Aaron. Now Moses doesn't know what's happening, but God does. God knows that at the foot of the mountain, Aaron is building a golden calf. And I say that to say this. There are times that God has a plan for you that you can't even stop. And just because you're screwing up today, or you have screwed up, doesn't mean that his calling is not still on your life. Because one day you may be building the calf, and the next day you're the high priest of Israel. When we cross the Jordan, God instructs them to take 12 stones one for each tribe of Israel, and build an altar and worship God there, sacrifice there. And he tells them specifically, when you pass by this altar, you tell the story. You tell the story. You tell your children how I rescued you. You tell them how you walked across the Jordan River on dry ground. You tell them how he got here. This is what I would call a monumental reminder. It's, it, it's a monument. It's something you can physically see and look at. But the whole point, again, is to remind you. As a reminder, when you go back, when you see it, you tell the story. This is how the story of God was translated from generation after generation after generation. It was through the festivals of Passover and the other Jewish high holidays. And it was through these monuments that when you passed them, you told the story so that you would know where God was and where he had come from. And we move from Joshua into the promised land. And there are judges who rule Israel. And there are kings who begin to rule Israel. King Saul is the first king. Doesn't pan out super well. But then there's a guy named David who is a man after God's own heart, which is pretty much almost equal with the friend of God as far as titles go. It's a really great one. And there was a prophet named Samuel who chose and anointed David because God said, go here and find my new king. And David leads Israel into the most prosperous season they've ever seen. And he vanquishes the enemies. And he begins, and, he, and David writes the bulk of the Psalms. Which are just songs. Praise songs. Worship songs. And he has these beautiful things about how he, he rests in the shadow of the wings. Where David at the time was literally, who is not a high priest, who's just a king, who's literally hanging out with the Ark of the Covenant and saying, as I rest in your shadows. And David screws up too. And then a guy named Nathan, who's a prophet, comes and rebukes David and said, the Lord says this to you today. And I began to look at all these things that God has said. And I tried to do some research to find out how many times 
does the Bible say something along the line of thus saith the Lord or the Lord, the God of Israel says unto you and the Lord and the word of the Lord came to and said. And the best I could find. One passage, one one thing I read said over 1900 times is that fr- those phrases uttered where they have a direct correlation between God speaking. And, and then I, I researched more, and other sources said, if you take every aspect of the, not just the thus saith the Lord's, but also the, the word of the Lord came, or the Lord spoke to, all these things three to 4,000 times in the Old Testament did God just speak to his people. He spoke through the judges. He spoke through the kings. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through Elijah. He spoke through Elisha. He spoke through Jeremiah and Nahum and Obadiah and all the minor prophets and Ezekiel and Isaiah and over and over and over again. He is speaking to his people, calling out to them. And the message is the same for 1,600 years. I just want to be with you. I wish that you would come back to me. And Israel, for 1,600 years, has this rise and fall, this ebb and flow all throughout this time period where they were obedient to God and God would prosper them. And then they would become disobedient and God would remove his hand of protection and typically what would happen is they would become enslaved or they'd be defeated by their enemies. And this happened for 1,600 years. The rise and fall of a civilization. But God's message throughout the entire thing remains the same. I just want to hang out with you. I desire a relationship with you. I wish that you would just come to me, that I could be your God and you would be my people over and over and over again. And he's screaming till he's blue in the face. You ever heard that expression? If you're a parent, you've done it. Blue in the face. Three to four thousand times. He says, this is what I'm telling you. Come back to me. Come back. If God says something a lot, I think he means it. And then we get to Malachi. If you're looking for Malachi in your, in your Bible, it's under Malachi. And Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. The last of the prophets that we see. And Malachi 1 starts off with this is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. Kind of what we're talking about here. This is a direct word from the Lord. And look at verse 2. I have always I have always loved you. You have been the apple of my eye since I hung out with your great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. I have always loved you. The message never changes. The people retort and say, really? How? How have you loved us? It's a bold statement. When the God of the universe, when he says, I have always loved you, and your response is, how? How have you loved me? 
You know how they got here? This is what I believe. They forgot to tell the stories. They forgot about the Passover. They forgot about how God rescued them out of Egypt. They forgot how God parted the Red Seas. They forgot how he vanquished their enemies. They forgot how God met with them at Sinai. They forgot how he provided manna for them for 40 years, that they never went hungry. They forgot how he delivered them out of the hands of the Philistines. They forgot how they crossed the Jordan River. They forgot how he had called fire from heaven. They forgot how they came into a promised land and won victory after victory that they had no business winning that they just weren't physically able to win and that God delivered them and that God many times would stop their enemies and their enemies would be destroyed and they never lifted a finger. They forgot how he shut the mouths of the lions. They forgot how he protected the lineage. They forgot how all the miracles and all the things that God had done since the beginning of time to preserve them and to make sure that they were where they needed to be. They forgot to tell the stories. A friend of mine, we were talking a while back, and, and we were talking about the crossing of the Jordan. And we talked about the altar. And he said, do you think it's still there? I said, no, I don't. Because I believe at some point somebody looked at it and said, what's that? And the people said, I don't know. It's just a pile of rocks. We forget to tell the stories. Malachi chapter 3, he says, you have said terrible things about me, says the Lord. But you say, what do you mean? What have we said against you? You have said, what's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying his commands or by trying to show the Lord of heaven's armies that we are sorry for our sins? From now on, we will call the arrogant blessed, for those who do evil get rich, and those who dare God to punish them suffer no harm. This, again, is a bold, bold statement. Do you see the pride and the arrogance of the people of Israel at the time of Malachi? Does it sound familiar? What's, what's the point? What's the point? There is really no point whatsoever in worshiping God. I mean, people steal, they get rich, they do all these things. What's the point? And God, and I hate this phrase, so forgive me for saying it. We expect the God of the Old Testament, because I hate that, because there is no God of the Old Testament. He's just God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same loving God that we see in Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament. We just read it wrong. We expect the God of the Old Testament right here to just come in and start burning stuff, don't we? You arrogant people. But he doesn't. Because remember how he started it always loved you. And so he finishes chapter 4 that the Lord of heaven's armies says, the day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. On that day, the arrogant and the wicked will be burned up like straw. They will be consumed, roots, branches, and all. But for you who fear my name, 
the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go free, leaping with joy like calves led out to pasture. On the day when I act, you will tread upon the wicked as if they were dust under your feet, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Remember, I don't know how many times he says remember, but remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant, and all the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And that ends what we call the Old Testament. And then God does something that we haven't seen him do. You see, 4,000 times, somewhere in that number, he has been speaking out to his people over this time frame, 1,600 years of just constant communication with his people and telling them how to be and how he feels about them and all these things drawing them back into him for 1,600 years. And at the end, as he says this last verse in Malachi, we see something that we don't really see anywhere else, and that is radio silence. Four hundred years. We don't like silence. We live in a time where there is constant noise. You got your earbuds in. You got. You walk into a store. There's music playing. You're constantly bombarded by sounds. We don't like silence. It gets awkward. We don't like awkward silence. But this is different. Heaven is silent for 400 years. I tried to come up with a way to put that into perspective, and I struggled because I looked at significant events that happened in 1622, and I couldn't find anything that I, that I even recognized. If you're a big history buff, the Jamestown Massacre happened in 1622. That was the only thing I had even heard of because most of it was happening in Europe and not even going on here. Because the United States of America is only 246 years old. So you're still 154 years away from the 400 years of silence. In other words, there was nobody in Israel who had known anybody, who had ever heard of anybody, who had ever known anybody that had heard a word from the Lord. God is silent. Now, some of you have been in those seasons where heaven is silent. Some of you may be in that season right now. I'm going to tell you what I believe beyond a shadow of any doubt. You see, while Israel was experiencing a season of silence, in this 400-year period, a lot's going on. In fact, during this time period, Alexander the Great rises to power and takes over the known world. And then they fall, and Julius Caesar comes, and the Romans take over the entire known world, all in this time period. And while God was silent, he finishes Malachi with remember to follow the laws. 
Because there are good people of Israel who were still doing the right things, who were still going through the motions, who were still obeying the commandments, who were still going to temple and making the sacrifices, who were doing those things. God was silent, but he was not inactive. God was still moving in among the people, preserving them, holding that remnant true. And I'm going to tell you today, if you have been in that place of silence or if you're there and there, God has not forsaken you. He has not forgot about you. He has plans to prosper you and not to harm you. He loves you. He desires a relationship with you. His promises are still true. He does not waver. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. He is active in your life. Hold on. Just hold on. I've been there. I know in those times when you, when you pray and it feels like they get all the way to the ceiling and then they bounce back in your face. Hold on. There are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew begins his story with the genealogy of Jesus. Because Matthew was written to the Israelites. He was written for them to understand who Jesus was. And the most important thing for them was they had to tie this back for David to Jesus. He had to be part of the lineage. And so that's how Matthew starts. Now Mark, Mark on the other hand, Mark is kind of like, he does action movies. Mark just jumps right in at the ministry of Jesus and covers that three-year period. It's it's concise, it's, it's action, nonstop. It's not real long, but it's, I'm just hitting the, the big stuff. Now, Luke is where we get the bulk of our Christmas story. It's where we have some background on why things were happening, talking about the politics of the world and how the world was laid out and the things that we were doing in that time period that led to the birth of Christ. That's Luke. It's in Luke where we see something that's really cool. And I am pro-life to the extent of the nth extent. All right? And you have all these arguments. You hear all these arguments in the world about when does life begin, and that's how they look at everything. I'm going to tell you today that the thing, my number one go-to for me in that argument is this. When Mary came to Elizabeth, John leapt inside the womb. Because the first person to recognize the deity of the Messiah was a baby in utero. That's all the argument I need. That's it. But John, John also has a birth story, and it's my favorite. And we're going to read that today. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. 
he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who, in himself, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Four hundred years of silence. God had talked till he was blue in the face, and he takes a break, and he says, I'm done talking. I am sending my word. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And then you know the Christmas story, right? Charlie Brown shows it every year. There are some shepherds who were just watching the flocks by night. And an angel appears, just one. And he says, don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings great joy. Now he does not say behold I bring you good tidings of great joy. Heaven is silent no more. He says behold I bring you good tidings of great joy for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. And then a whole host this is the only time we see this in scripture like this. The host of heaven, not 10, not 20, the host, a multitude, the host of heaven comes out and says, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace and goodwill to men. Everything that has been going on for 4,000 years is now wrapped up in this manger, in a barn. He is here. Peace has come. The Savior has come. No more words. The Word came to give me the opportunity just to hang out with Him, which has been His desire all along, the culmination of 4,000 years of history, the glimmer in Abraham's eye has shown up. We talk about the wonder and the magic of Christmas. This is the wonder and the magic of Christmas. If we, the people of God, understood the fullness of what Christmas means, then I promise you that the world does not have a cheap imitation that can ever replace it. This is our hope. This is the fullness I was going to say earlier that from the beginning, from the in the beginning to the even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, 
But then I realized that everything since Genesis 3, since the fall of man, has been even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. I am not naive enough to believe that Jesus was born on December 25th, year zero. I don't know the date. But this is a calendar event. This is a time when the world recognizes Christmas. And you can forget all the stuff that surrounds it. You can forget all of that, and we can argue about stuff, and I don't want to do that. But here's what I know. That when it circles around, we remember. And we tell the stories. We tell our children the stories because they don't forget because that's how it gets lost. Because we don't tell the stories. So we tell the stories of our Savior, of our Redeemer, of our Deliverer, how He came to make a way for me. He became my Emmanuel, the God who walks with me. We remember and we tell the story. And then we rejoice. We rejoice because he's come. We rejoice because we're not waiting anymore. We get to live. The spirit of God that was there that day and the spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of me. And I don't have to worry anymore. Because peace has come. Take just a few moments to remember and rejoice. <laughs>